This podcast is supported by anonymous friends of George Washington's Mount Vernon. Hello, and welcome to Intertwined Stories. I'm your host, Jeanette Patrick. In this miniseries, we're taking a deeper dive into the history behind the podcast, Intertwined, the enslaved community at George Washington's Mount Vernon. To create that show, we interviewed over 20 scholars, some of whom are descendants of Mount Vernon's enslaved community, for over an hour each. We couldn't fit everything into the main series, so we're happy to bring you extended versions of some of those conversations now. Labor dictated life for enslaved communities at Mount Vernon and beyond, and yet despite their enslavement, people like Sambo Anderson, Kate, and Caroline Branham carved out time for themselves, created families, and forged relationships, sometimes across vast distances, that brought them comfort and some sense of control over their own lives. As we heard throughout Intertwined, Reconstructing the lived experience of slavery is a difficult task. We have few surviving accounts from the people who were enslaved, so we must use a variety of sources and evidence to interpret the past. To help us better understand what life was like in Virginia and throughout the Atlantic world, we chatted with Dr. Brenda Stevenson, who is an expert on history of slavery, family, and gender in the early United States. Dr. Stevenson is the inaugural Hillary Rodden Clinton Chair in Women's History at St. John's College at Oxford University. I was in the host chair for our interview with Dr. Stevenson, and we talked to her just before she made her move across the Atlantic in the summer of 2021. We pick up our chat with her about living conditions and daily life in Virginia before exploring how enslaved people formed families and communities. So if we could um, maybe shift a little bit to daily life, and could you talk um, some about the living conditions for people in Virginia or, you know, broader is is also fine, but maybe how, you know, living conditions or daily life might vary between like an urban and rural setting. Well, living conditions for enslaved people varied a great deal. It really came down to almost the owner and the numbers of enslaved people that you have. For example, if you have someone like George Washington, you have someone who can afford to have large numbers of enslaved people, can afford to house large numbers of enslaved people, can afford to feed large numbers of enslaved people, you know, and clothe them as well. But if you have someone who's a poor farmer who has maybe one or two people, you know, a small plot of not very fertile land, all right, and trying to grow a tobacco crop, then they're not going to probably have a separate cabin for these one or two people. These people are going to sleep on the floor somewhere, maybe in a cellar, maybe in a barn, in the tobacco barn. They are not going to have very decent clothing. They're going to have the minimal when it comes to clothing, when it comes to shoes. They're probably going to have to feed themselves. That is, they're going to have to go out and hunt and fish, and they'll get a, you know, a little food allowance, but not a significant food allowance. They will have a lot of work to do and it's going to be multiple tasks. It's not just going to be, oh, you work in the field. No, you work in the field, you work in the house, you work in the garden, you work in the, you know, you work with the livestock, you know, you're going to do all of that. When we have somebody who has a lot of enslaved people like George Washington, their labor is fairly specified. People are going to work in the dairy. He's got people who's going to do, you know, the laundry. He's got people who's going to be his personal servant or or his family's personal servants. Got people who are going to grow the tobacco, grow the 
wheat grain you know you're gonna have people who are gonna build the fencing you're gonna have people who are gonna do the who are gonna paint the outside of the houses you know all these other kinds of things are gonna go on you're gonna have your domestic slaves or the people who are gonna be at Mount Vernon living in something that looks like a brick dormitory and everybody's gonna have a pad to sleep on and all that you're not gonna have very much privacy because lots of people in one room you're gonna have people who can have families on or nearby because you've got 200 300 enslaved people so their families that are going to develop so those kinds of things are, you know in terms of your day-to-day life those are all the positive things if you can say anything's positive about slavery you know you've got two people living somewhere out in i don't know some far Flubana County or some more rural county or something like that, living further up in other places of the Northern Neck uh, or in the West, what we call the West then going towards the Shenandoah, then these people are going to have to spread out to find a wife. And they're going to have an abroad marriage if they can have that. They're going to only see their families half a day on Sunday because they've got to get permission to be able to travel to see their wives and children. They're not going to have control any day-to-day interaction with families and, and that kind of thing. They're not going to be able to pool their resources and share their food or their clothing either. So they're not going to be able to comfort the person if they're sick or a fear of being sold away or traded or something. So it can be very, very different, the experiences that you have. If you're working a field, you know, many people think field work is, is the worst kind of work to do, but you do have more privacy and you do have more control of your life at the end of the day. If you work in the house, there are people who have to sleep in the in the laundry room or they don't get to go to be with their families, etc. Um, if someone gets sick, you're going to stay up all night. You're going to be the person who's going to change the dirty linen, who's all this other kind of stuff. So the kind of emotional strain that you're going to have by being close to the person who controls most aspects of your life is very intense if you're a domestic. The people who I think probably have the quote unquote most mobility, most control, etc., are of course the skilled artisans because skilled artisans like carpenters or blacksmiths or even you know midwives, seamstresses, weavers, they're given a task to do. They're pretty much left on their own to do the work, particularly the men. And sometimes they find that if they have to do a certain amount of work, their owner will allow them to use their day off, which is Sunday, to work for somebody else who might not be able to afford a blacksmith, for example. Um, He will take a share of that income and may allow that person to also take a share of it. It can vary tremendously. I think the people who uh, are worked the hardest in terms of physical work are the people who are in the frontier farms because you have to cut down the forest. And Virginia and all these places are heavily forested. You have to beat back the wild animals because there are lots of bears and cougars and snakes and and all of that. You have to plant. You've got to, you know, get the roots out of the ground and turn the soil over. And in Virginia, of course, in the summer, when most in the spring and the summer, when you do the planting and the harvesting and all of that kind of stuff, it's very hot. It's very humid. I used to take my daughter to Bush Gardens and other places too, or even just to go to the plantations along the James River. You can feel that heat. You you know what? You're thinking about a person who's in charge of a thousand tobacco plants in that heat. 
in that humidity and in that swampiness is very um, overwhelming just to think about what it was like. Absolutely, yes. It would have been truly miserable um, for so many reasons. And if you lived in a city, I mean, if you lived in Williamsburg, for example, then you were much more likely to live in an alleyway or something. You had a lot more freedom in terms of just mobility itself. You probably got more news about what was going on in the world just because all of these port towns and cities brought in not just enslaved people but also the news of the empire. You also, it was easier to escape if you lived in the city because the small but important free Black population of Virginia mostly lived in cities. And so if a person saw you, they didn't necessarily think automatically you were an enslaved person. You could have been one of those very lucky people who worked on the ships or something, or worked on the docks, who was already had gained your freedom. It was also easier to get on a ship to bribe someone to hide you and to take you away from there. We see this happening a lot in like my hometown of Portsmouth, Virginia, for example. We know that, you know, the churches that were close to the docks is where a lot of people went through. There were tunnels that went directly to the, the seacoast, um, to the area where shipping was taking place to get onto them. But if you lived in Charlottesville, where I went to college, it was harder to get out. If you lived in Norfolk, Portsmouth, if you lived in Richmond, it was all these places are along the coast or along a river or something like that. And it, it's much easier if you were in, you know, along the Potomac, it's much easier to escape. It was always a tremendous emotional burden, psychological burden. It doesn't matter whether or not you were, you know, a blacksmith or if you were the lowliest worker picking worms off of the tobacco plant in some place where all you could see was tobacco plants, period. It was a psychological burden. You didn't have control over your life. You didn't have control over your family. You didn't know what was happening to your loved ones or, or what could happen to you. You could be sold at any time. You could be killed at any time, really. You could be kidnapped at any time. And lots of people in towns are kidnapped. They're kidnapped. So that's the downside of living in town because you could be put in a wagon, covered up, taken to the next town, sold. It's excruciating life. Yeah, absolutely terrible. Um, could you describe the types of like family networks and social networks that we see developing, especially with communities that you know have no say over where they're living and often don't get to live with, you know, those biological family members? There are all kinds of families that develop, and so what we see happening is family and marital traditions that are we find in West Africa, West and Central Africa, you know, transported to the Americas with enslaved people. But we also see ideas about marriage and family that are being imposed or exist as examples that are coming from Europe, that are coming from Britain as well. And so we will see families develop. For example, um, George Washington is a wonder to us historians who do social history because he, he keeps his slave list and he indicates family relations. And so thank you 
Um, and, um, and so we can see that even on his property uh, between him and Martha Washington, um, there are many families that develop husbands, wives, children, grandchildren. And we also see people who are just husband and wife. We also see people who are just mothers and children. We see people who are single. We see all of these kinds of iterations of family. What's very important, I think, when we think about enslaved people because of um, cultural heritage, but also because of the kinds of working and living conditions that they had as enslaved people, we see extended families. Okay, so we see fictive kin, we see people who are taking orphan children, for example. They take them in because they want to help them, but also sometimes the owner will say, you need to take care of this child. Okay, their mother is dead or their mother's no longer with them, etc. So we see that happening. We see grandparents who are taking care of children. We also see the fictive ten developing in male groups because men were often, young men uh, are often sold when they were like 12 or 13 or moved to another outlying farm or something like that. They live in houses where there's like five or six guys, you know, they're from the age of 12 to the age of 30 or something like that. So we have fictive all gender kinship groups that are developing, same for women, because women who, you know, may or work in the house, for example, or work in the same gangs together, they have, they look out for one another, they exchange information, they exchange resources, they act as midwives, they act as counselors, etc. So we see what we think of as traditional family styles, we see the nuclear family, we see the marriages. We also see fictive kin networks. We also see extended kin networks. And we don't see it sort of just relegated to one geographical space that is one farm. What we do know is that family networks, friend networks, community networks were really vast. I mean, countywide and sometimes even crossing over counties. It's amazing how people are able to walk so much at night. There's a lot of quote unquote night walking that's going on. There are a lot of religious ceremonies and rituals that are going on at night. And of course, the long break that comes at in the winter around Christmas, for example, allows people to reconnect with one another. In the colonial period, we see some polygamy, okay? So, and we see that in Virginia. And we also see serial monogamy because people are often sold away. And so they remarry and then they remarry again. And this is something that happens not only in the colonial period, but particularly in the early Republic and the antebellum period, because so many people, particularly from Virginia, are part of the domestic slave trade and are sold to the lower South and the Southwest. If you look at Freedmen's Bureau papers, for example, where they actually are trying to reconnect people and they're actually trying to get people legally married, we begin to see they had a wife before, they had four children before they had. So we kind of see the serial monogamy that's in place as a result of being a part of the domestic slave trade. When we look at the earliest people who come over, the people who come over in 1619, 1621, 1622, we see some people who may have been married or may have connected with one another in Middle Passage and are lucky enough to be purchased by the same person or to go to reside at the same place. There's one family in Hampton, Virginia, for example, that's been in Hampton, Virginia since 1621, basically. We also see some people who don't remarry because they've got a family in West Africa or Western Central Africa and both males and females. Because there's so many men in relationship to women, there's a lot of pressure on women to marry. But women can also pick and choose 
you know, <laughs> to, you know, so the person who's the best hunter or the person who's, you know, the nicest or the has the most uh, status because they had status in, in their society in West Africa. One of the things I think is very interesting is that as the slave trade develops and more and more Africans arrive, that they do tend to choose people from their own ethnic group. They don't tend to, I mean, if they have to, because there's not enough, we see some examples of people cross-marrying or marrying to other ethnicities. But if you have a group of people who are matrilineal, for example, they tend to marry among themselves. People who are patrilineal don't tend to marry people who are matrilineal because it, it really does subvert what they think of as a family descent and, and all of that. I think that's pretty cool. I mean, it's, it's interesting at any rate. Intertwined Stories is a production of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association and CD Squared. I'm Jeanette Patrick, your host for this episode, which was produced by Jim Embusky. Jim Embusky and I co-created and co-wrote the main series, Intertwined, The Enslaved Community at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Brenda Parker brought it to life as our wonderful narrator. Kurt Dahl of CD Square was our lead producer and audio engineer. Thank you to the anonymous friends of George Washington's Mount Vernon, whose generous financial support made this show possible. Please rate and review Intertwined on your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear what you think, and it will help more people find the series. And remember to check out our website for full transcripts, teacher resources, and suggested readings. You'll find it at www.georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.